Those of you who've been regulars at these uh, studies will not be surprised to learn that once again the Kingdom of Israel was at war. And you need to turn to the second book of Kings and chapter 9. We're looking at chapters 9 and 10 today of the second book of Kings. Interesting though, they're not at war with Judah, the southern kingdom. They are in fact at war with their perpetual enemies to the north, Syria. Um, In the Bible you will sometimes see Syria described as Aram, A-R-A-M. So it's the same area of land, the same country that's being referred to. So Israel is at war with Syria. And Joram, who is the king of Israel, is being supported in this battle by Ahaziah, who is his nephew and who is the king of Judah. And once again, they're fighting over Ramoth-Gilead. And if you were here at the last study, you'll remember how Ahab, king of Israel, persuaded Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, to join in battle with him over this very same place. So it was, it was one of those cities that went backwards and forwards um, over many, many years. Now, at this particular point, as we're going through, the commander of the army of Israel is called Jehu. And he's the main focus of our first section today. Now in the battle that ensued, Joram gets wounded. Joram, the king of Israel, gets wounded and he's taken to the city of Jezreel. He takes refuge there and Ahaziah follows him. So if you look back actually in the previous chapter of two kings, chapter 8 verses 28 to 29, you will see where that happens. So what this does is it leaves Jehu, the commander of the army, in charge of the battle. Because as it were, Joram's limped off the battlefield to get medical attention. Okay, And so Jehu is now in command on the field. Now back in 1 Kings 19, 15 to 17, Elijah, during the reign of Ahab, Joram's father had actually anointed Jehu as a future king of Israel, a future king of the northern kingdom, with a statement that he would bring God's judgment upon Israel. So that was several years before that was prophesied. Now, Elisha, who is the prophet at this particular point who succeeded Elijah, Elisha would have known about this prophecy with regard to Jehu. Now, with Joram wounded and in the city getting attention, the city of Jezreel, Elisha decides that this is the time, that this is the time for Jehu to take over the kingdom and to be officially anointed king in Joram's place. So while he's out of action, Elisha, believes that this is the time to pick up the prophecy of his predecessor Elijah with regard to Jehu and that he should now be proclaimed king at this point. And so what Elisha does, you're looking in 2 Kings chapter 9, he summons one of the prophets and he gives him strict instructions with regard to Jehu's anointing. He tells him it's to be done privately, so he's not to make a big show of it, and that Jehu was to be given God's authorization to destroy the house of Ahab. 
that was always going to be the mission of Jehu, to destroy the house of Ahab in Israel. And of course, Joram was part of the house of Ahab, obviously being the son of... Oh, yes, I've just got a mental block there. Anyway, we'll move on. <laughs> yeah, the son of Ahab. Yes, what am I thinking? And this was to avenge the slaughter of God's servants and prophets, which had been carried out by Ahab's wife, Jezebel, who it was prophesied would one day be devoured by dogs. That was prophesied about Jezebel's end was going to be rather messy, and she was going to be devoured by dogs. She's still alive, by the way, as we'll see. And so the prophet does as Elisha bids him, and he goes and he carries out the anointing. And Elisha told him, as soon as you've done that anointing, just get out of there fast. And so that's exactly what he does, because he knew that a massacre would ensue. And so the prophet follows Elisha's instructions to the letter. And you can see that in 2 Kings 9, verses 1 to 10. And when Jehu's fellow officers saw the prophet sprinting off into the distance... They asked Jehu, and look at verse 11, quote, Is everything all right? Why did this madman come to you? So this anointing, you see, has taken place very privately indeed. Even his fellow officers didn't know about it. As soon as they see the prophet sprinting off, they then come to Jehu and say, What's going on? And Jehu told them all about what had happened and why it had happened with the result that the officers blew a trumpet and proclaimed Jehu as king, even though Joram was still alive and well. So you could say this is actually an act of treason. Well, Jehu lost no time starting on his God-given crusade to get rid of Ahab's descendants. And in the book uh, where I've written about all these characters, as many of you know, I call this, I call him the zealous crusader. Jehu, the zealous crusader. Now, Jehu knew who had to be the first person to be got rid of, and that was going to be, obviously, King Joram. You know, they say they can tell a lot about a person from the way that they drive. Have you noticed that? You can tell a lot about a person from the way that they drive. And this is particularly the case with this man, Jehu. His driving style and his chariots and his horses, the way he did it, was legendary for its recklessness. Legendary for its recklessness. So you would know it was Jehu driving along when you could see him in the distance from the way that he was driving. And this, if you look at verse 20, is how the lookout standing on the tower in Jezreel knew that it was Jehu approaching the city. If you look at verse 20, and I quote, the driving is like that of Jehu, son of Nimshi. He drives like a madman. He drives like a madman. So the lookout was able to inform the citizens of Jezreel that Jehu was approaching. On hearing this, Joram decides to ride out to meet his commander. And Ahaziah, his nephew, remember, king of Judah, who's supporting him, goes along with him. Now, 
here's something very, very significant. Very, very poignant. And to me, very, very interesting. It's where they met. They met at the plot of ground that had once belonged to a local man of Jezreel called Naboth. Now, many of you will be aware of the, what happened with regard to Naboth's vineyard in the first book of Kings at the time of Elisha. Joram's parents, that's Ahab and Jezebel, had illegally acquired this property after Jezebel had plotted the murder of Naboth because he refused to sell his family vineyard to them. And you can read all about that in 1 Kings 21, verses 1 to 24, if you're not familiar with that. And at the time, Elijah, not to be confused with Elisha, but Elijah had prophesied that, and I quote from those verses, in the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours. That was Elijah's prophecy about the matter when he found out what had happened with regard to Naboth's vineyard. And this prophecy was about to be fulfilled in the death of Ahab's son. So here's Joram meeting Jehu. And if you go back to our chapter 9 and look at verse 22, Joram tentatively asks Jehu if he has, and I quote, come in peace. And Jehu replied, verse 22, how can there be peace as long as the idolatry and witchcraft of your mother Jezebel abound? How can there be peace as long as the idolatry and witchcraft of your mother Jezebel abound. Well, Jehu saw his crusade as more than just eliminating the house of Ahab. The land itself was important. It wasn't just about eliminating the people, the descendants of Ahab in his house. It was about cleansing the land, cleansing the land of the worship of Baal and the foreign gods that went with it, which of course you'll remember Jezebel had actually introduced into the land. And everything associated with it had to go. The, the land had to be cleansed of all this false, foreign, idolatrous worship. The house of Ahab and the worship of Baal were inextricably intertwined. They were a cancer a cancer in the kingdom of Israel, and they had to be dealt with, and dealt with drastically. However, I have to say that in his zeal, in his zeal to accomplish his God-given mission, Jehu, like his driving, showed a recklessness. He showed a recklessness, a callousness, you could say, that was really uncalled for. And we'll see how that unfolds. Well, when Joram heard what Jehu had to say about his mother and the rest of it there, he realised that his days were numbered and he tried to escape in his chariot. If you look at verse 23, he tries to escape in his chariot shouting, Treachery, Ahaziah! And off he went, turned around and fled. Jehu shot an arrow 
into his back, between the shoulders, piercing his heart. Jehu clearly knew about Elijah's prophecy, so he ordered Joram, or rather Joram's body, should I say, to be thrown, and I quote from verse 25, to be thrown on the field that belonged to guess who? To Naboth, the Jezreelite. All right, see the significance of this. He orders Joram's body. Here's the prophecy of Elijah all those years ago when his parents purloined this vineyard illegally and killed Naboth in the process. Here's this prophecy now being brought to pass on the field that belonged to Naboth, the, Jezreel, uh, the Jezreelite. But Jehu seems to have expanded this prophecy, actually, to justify his callous treatment of Joram's body. You can see about that in verse 26. And Ahaziah also tried to make good his escape. But Jehu's men chased after him and severely wounded him, such that Ahaziah also died. Now, to kill the king of Judah was not commanded by the prophet. But presumably Jehu would have justified his action by saying that, well, actually, Ahaziah is a grandson of Ahab. His mother, in fact, was Athaliah. And you may remember that to cement that relationship between Ahab and Jehoshaphat in the last study, he married Jehoshaphat's, married his son Jehoram to the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, and she was Athaliah. And Ahaziah was one of their sons. So he was, although he was king of Judah, he was actually a grandson of Ahab. What this shows about Jehu is that he's beginning to interpret God's briefing in his own way. He's beginning to interpret God's briefing in his own way. And I just wonder, you know, to, to, to apply this to us, you know, do we ever twist do we ever take out of context or misinterpret God's word to make it fit in with we, what we want it to say? Do we ever twist God's word to make it fit in with what we want it to say or to justify what we're doing, to justify the way that we're behaving? It's quite a challenging thought, isn't it? To think and just consider whether we ever do that. Well, guess who is next on Jehu's to-do list? You've guessed it, Jezebel, Jezebel herself. Well, defiant to the last, Jezebel puts on her makeup and does her hair. If she was going to die, she was going to do it in style. She was watching out of the window of her upper floor window in the palace as Jehu entered Jezreel. So she presumably seen her son go off out to meet Jehu with Ahaziah and now Jehu's coming to the city. She knows why he's coming and she watches the news of her son's death must have already reached her because she leant out of the window 
and shouted, ironically, at Jehu, the words you'll find there in verse 31, from which I quote, Have you come in peace, Zimri, you murderer of your master? And I think, hang on, I thought his name was Jehu, right? You're getting me all confused. <laughs> yeah, well, you see, Jezebel was referring to somebody else, a person called Zimri, who was also an army commander who had committed treason in the past by killing Elah and then proclaiming himself king. And you can read all about that back in 1 Kings 16, verses 8 to 10. So Jezebel saw Jehu, another army commander, as being guilty of exactly the same crime. That's why she calls him Zimri, because he's repeating the crime of Zimri. Well, as you might expect, Jehu wasn't going to take any lectures about how to behave from Jezebel. And he persuaded some men who were standing near Jezebel that if they were on his side, they should show their allegiance by grabbing her and throwing her down. And of course, the men realised which way the wind was blowing. So they obliged. Jezebel hit the ground and was then deliberately trampled underfoot by Jehu's horses, probably unnecessarily, spattering blood everywhere. Well, you'll never guess what Jehu did next. He went and had something to eat, leaving Jezebel's body lying in the street. Well, he did send men to bury her later, but all that was left of her by then was her skull, her feet and her hands. The dogs had consumed the rest in accordance with Elijah's prophecy about her death in the wake of the Naboth scandal. Look back at 1 Kings 21, 23. But again here you see Jehu's interpreting it in his own way. He's expanding the prophecy. If you look what he says in verse 37, he expands the prophecy seemingly to justify his treatment of her. Well, Jehu knew that there were still 70, 70 sons of the house of Ahab back up in Samaria, the capital. And so Jehu sits down and he writes a letter. He writes a letter to the leaders of the city of Samaria, telling them, to set one of these sons up as a rival king so that the matter could be sorted in battle. The leaders of the city of Samaria could also sense the way the wind was blowing and they knew very well if they set up one of the sons of Ahab as a king and there was a civil war, they knew what the result was going to be because Jehu had got the army on his side. They stood no chance. So because of that, they agreed to do anything that Jehu asked. So Jehu wrote them a second letter. And this was very cleverly worded by Jehu. To be capable of two interpretations. If you look at chapter 10 and verse 6. This is what he writes in his second letter. And I'm quoting. If you are on my side and will obey me, Take the heads of your master's sons and come to me in Jezreel by this time 
tomorrow. If you are on my side and will obey me, take the heads of your master's sons and come to me in Jezreel by this time tomorrow. Now, as Jehu hoped, they took his message literally. And rather than bringing the princes to meet him, they slaughtered all 70 of them and sent their heads to Jehu in baskets. I've heard of a chicken in a basket, but a head in a basket is a completely different proposition. So in this sort of clever way, Jehu achieved his purpose, but in a way which meant no blame could be attached to him for their deaths. I didn't kill them, I just wanted to meet them. It was the elders of Samaria that decided that this is what should happen. And that was not the end of Jehu's bloodbath, I have to tell you. In his zealousness, he again exceeded God's commands, this time by slaughtering, if you look at verse, uh, chapter 10, verses 11 and 12 to 14, by slaughtering all those who were in any way remotely connected to the house of Ahab, plus 42 relatives of Ahaziah who had arrived from Judah. Many years later, God pronounced punishment on the house of Jehu for his, quote, massacre at Jezreel, which ultimately resulted in the end of the kingdom of Israel. Hosea chapter 1, verses 4 to 5 is where you'll pick that up. We remember when we were doing our series on the Minor Prophets, Amos and Hosea were prophesying to the northern kingdom of Israel at the time of its demise and it fell to the Assyrians. Jehu, actually, is an example of many revolutionary leaders down through history who, in their fervour to get rid of the evils which existed, only succeeded in committing atrocities of their own. And such people, how do they often justify such actions? Well, simply by saying, God was on my side. Look at chapter 10, verse 16. Jehu actually boasted to a man named Jehonadab that he was doing all this out of his, quote, zeal for the Lord. The reason he was behaving like this, he told Jehonadab, was because of his zeal for the Lord. Now, interestingly, this man, Jehonadab, was also full of zeal for the Lord. But he showed it in a completely different way. They couldn't be as different if you tried to make them different. Jehonadab separated his clan as far as possible from worldly involvement so that they could live pure lives before God. And they became known as the Rechabites. I thought his name was Jehonadab. Yeah, but they called it after Jehonadab's father. And they impress God by their devotion to him. You can read more about the Rechabites in Jeremiah chapter 35. So we might be asking, here's Jehonadab, 
and he believes you should withdraw from the world so you can live in purity, why on earth would he throw in his lot with somebody like Jehu? Well, they had one thing in common. And the one thing they had in common was a hatred of the worship of Baal. And they both wanted to see it destroyed. And Jehonadab was prepared to accept that Jehu had the means and the authority to carry out this mission. And so that would be put into practice. Talking about zeal for the Lord, you know, the Bible does actually encourage us to have zeal for the Lord. For instance, in Romans 12, 11, we read, never be lacking in zeal. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour serving the Lord. Jesus himself was full of zeal. See the prophecy in Isaiah 59, 17. See also John chapter 2 and verse 17. But at the same time, contrast the zeal showed by Jehu and the zeal showed by Jesus. The zeal we see in Jesus was always under control. I mean, the most obvious example is the cleansing of the temple, isn't it? Where he really see the zeal of the Lord and it's said, quoted from this, that, that particular prophecy in Isaiah, that the zeal of the Lord has consumed him, you know, because he, he, he did those, uh, well, violent, I suppose you could say, actions because of his zeal for the house of the Lord. But it never got out of hand. It never overstepped the mark. Can you imagine what Jehu would have done in that situation in the temple? And there we have the contrast between zeal as shown by Jehu and as shown by Jesus. My prayer is that may God give us all a zeal, a zeal for souls like Paul had and a zeal to serve others like Epaphras did. If you look at 1 Corinthians 9.22 and Colossians 4.13. Well, with Jehanadab in tow and pretending this is Jehu pretending to be an enthusiastic servant of Baal, Jehu summons an assembly of all the prophets of Baal, the ministers and servants. Look at chapter 2 Kings, back in 2 Kings 10, verses 18 to 22. So Jehu pretends that he's an enthusiast for the worship of Baal and he, has a, he summons a, a conference, if you like, of all these people. But then he surrounded the temple where they were gathered with 80 armed men. And at his signal, the armed men entered the temple and you can guess the rest. They systematically massacred all those inside and then they demolished the temple completely. And if you look at chapter 10 verses 23 to 27 where you see that described, the ruins of the temple became used as a toilet. Mission accomplished. The worship of Baal, as well as the house of Ahab, had now been destroyed. You know, it would be easy, but in my opinion, unfair, 
to dismiss Jehu as nothing more than a bloodthirsty thug. Agreed, there was a certain degree of callousness in the way he treated the bodies of Joram and Jezebel, but he probably felt justified in doing so, considering the havoc that the house of Ahab had caused in Israel. And clearly, he was overzealous at times in his zeal for the Lord, but he was commended. He was commended for carrying out his mission as God's instrument of judgment on the house of Israel. And he did destroy Baal worship in Israel. Look at chapter 10, verses 28 and 30. Perhaps we could say extreme times call for extreme measures. Point for discussion, I think. Now, perhaps surprisingly, Jehu stopped right there. Having destroyed Baal worship, what would we have expected his next step to have been? But he didn't do it. He did not go on to re-establish worship of God throughout the land. You'd have thought that's what he would have done next, surely. I certainly would. But no, he doesn't. What does he do? Look at verse 29, gives us the clue. Instead, he persisted in what is described there in verse 29 as the sins of Jeroboam. The sins of Jeroboam. Now, I don't know if you remember when we did the study about Rehoboam and Jeroboam and the dividing of the kingdom. That phrase you will see often attached to the obituaries of the kings of Israel, that they did the sins of Jeroboam. What were the sins of Jeroboam? Well, if you remember... And this applied, surprisingly, to Jehu. He allowed the worship of the golden calves at Bethel and Dan. If you remember, they were the two shrines in the north and south of Israel. It allowed those shrines to continue to flourish. Probably for the exact same reason that Jeroboam had set them up in the first place. And do you remember what that was? So that the people wouldn't all troop down to Jerusalem for the festivals and get embroiled in what was going on down there and decide that that was better than what they got in Israel and cause all sorts of problems. And so for exactly the same reason, Jehu's saying, well, I'll keep Bethel and Dangoi because I want to keep hold of my kingship. I want to keep hold of the power I've got in Israel. And look at verse 31. Not only did he allow the people to do it, but he himself participated in this. He actually failed to follow the ways of the Lord with, for all, with all his heart. And for this, he was roundly condemned. So we get commendation and condemnation in this particular section. In fact, all that Jehu did was to exchange one form of idolatry for another. He exchanged one form of idolatry for another. He failed to take the opportunity to serve the God who had made him king of Israel. Well, on balance, 
God disapproved of both the means by which Jehu achieved his mission and his subsequent actions. And God's disapproval is shown in two ways. Look at verse 30 of chapter 10. Jehu's dynasty was only allowed to last four more generations. And during Jehu's reign, the size of Israel's territory diminished. Looking at verses 32 and 33, Hazael, the king of Syria, captured all the land to the east of the river Jordan. So the time of his dynasty, the length of his dynasty was drastically shortened and the territory that he controlled was also diminished and decreased. So in spite of what he achieved, Jehu stands condemned for what really? Well, for only obeying God when it suited him. Only obeying God when it suited him rather than submitting himself completely to the service of God. And of course the challenge for each one of us from that is is obvious, isn't it? Does our obedience to God depend on what he asks us to do or are our lives examples of true servanthood? Let's move on then to our next character, Joash, who I've called Little Boy Lost. That's the title I give to Joash in the book. And for that, we need to be looking at the second book of Chronicles, chapter 22, starting at verse 10, through to chapter 24, verse 27. And I'm also going to refer to the second book of Kings, chapters 11 to 12, which follow on from where we are, but only briefly talk about Joash. Chronicles gives us the more detailed account, as the focus of Chronicles tends to be upon the kings of Judah. So what was happening in the kingdom of Judah? While Jehu was king of Israel, what was going on in the kingdom of Judah? Well, we come back to Athaliah. Remember, Athaliah is the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel of Israel, and she'd been married to Jehoram during the reign of his father Jehoshaphat. And so Jehoram eventually succeeds Jehoshaphat as king of Judah. And Jehoram reigns for eight years, and then he's followed by their son Ahaziah. But Ahaziah reigned only for one year before being put to death by Jehu, as we've just been learning about. And then there was a coup. Athaliah stages a coup. And she seizes the throne of Judah, even though she was of the house of Ahab. She had no claim to the throne whatever. She was of the house of Ahab. She was not of the house of David. She had no right to the throne of Judah, but she took it in a coup. And then, if you look at 2 Chronicles 22 and verse 10, we're told what she did. Quote, she proceeded to destroy the whole royal family of the house of Judah. She proceeded 
to destroy the whole royal family of the house of Judah. Perhaps you had in mind to go back to one kingdom again, you know, and link up with Israel. We're not told. But you see, did you see what the effect of this would be? If she eliminates the whole of the royal family of the house of Judah, then what's going to happen to the line of David? And God's promises about the line of David. And of course, we know who's coming from the line of David. You know, the Lord Jesus himself. So what's going to happen? Athaliah was so determined to retain the power, you see, that she'd enjoyed firstly as queen when her husband Jehoram was alive, and then as queen mother, that she ruthlessly and callously killed all the royal family, or so she thought. Or so she thought. However, one descendant of David, one descendant of David managed to survive her purge and that was her grandson Joash a son of Ahaziah and Joash was hidden Joash was hidden from his grandmother Athaliah by his aunt Jehoshiba who was the sister and obviously therefore a daughter of Athaliah Chapter 22, verses 11 to 12, you'll see that. Now, to start with, look where she hid Joash and his nurse, because Joash was only a baby at this time. She hid them in one of the palace bedrooms while Athaliah went on her killing spree. But, of course, they desperately needed another long-term hiding place. It wasn't, eventually, they were going to be found. So they needed somewhere else that was far more safe and secure. Where could that be? Well, as it happened, Jehoshaphat was married to Jehoiada. And Jehoiada was the priest. So we know where the priest would have been most of the time, in the temple. And so Jehoshaphat decides to smuggle Joash and his nurse out of the palace and into the temple where he could be hidden far more easily and safely. And Joash remained in hiding for six years, six years in hiding in the temple while Athaliah ruled the kingdom of Judah. It was only in the seventh year of Athaliah's rule that Jehoiada finally plucked up the courage to take action against this idolatrous queen. And we read about that in chapter 23, verses 1 to 11. Now, of course, treason against the queen could cost him his life. But he knew it was the right thing to do. So what Jehoiada did was this. He gathered together various disaffected commanders from her army. He gathered together groups of mercenaries... We know what mercenaries are. They fight for whatever side pays the best. And he gathered together the Levites and heads of families from throughout Judah because nobody really was happy about Athaliah being queen, but no one dared to oppose her. And there at the temple, they made a covenant together before God, a solemn covenant to restore 
the throne to Ahaziah's son and legitimate heir, the seven-year-old Joash. And so Jehoiada then outlined detailed and meticulous plans to accomplish their agreed objective. And when all was ready and everyone was in place, Joash was proclaimed king. And the people were jubilant. They hated Athaliah. The people were jubilant and they flocked to greet him. And Athaliah hears the commotion. And she needs to find out what's going on. So she rushes to the temple to see what's happening. And when she saw Joash standing there as king and heard all the acclamation, Athaliah tore her robes and screamed, Treason! Treason! Verse 13. Which, when you think about it, was a bit rich coming from her, considering what she'd done to seize the throne in the first place. Jehoiada had her put to death by the sword, but notice he had her shipped off back to the palace grounds to do that. He wasn't going to do that in the precincts of the temple. So Athalari is put to death by the sword in the palace grounds. Looking at verse 16, we see that Jehoiada then made a covenant with God that, quote, he and the people and the king would be the Lord's people. That he and the people and the king would be the Lord's people. In other words, they're committing themselves to follow the covenant of Moses, which had been largely ignored for more than a century by now in Judah with all that had been going on. But they were going to go back to following the covenant. And they took action to cement this undertaking. All traces of Baal worship, which Athaliah had established in Judah, were removed. The temple of Baal that had been built was demolished and Matan, the priest of Baal, was killed. But it didn't stop there. Jehoiada went further than Jehu. What he did was he restored the worship of God in all its fullness. And this included all the proper procedures in the temple as it had been in the time of King David. And with the rightful king enthroned and the worship of God re-established, verses 16 to 21 where you read all about that, there was rejoicing and there was peace throughout the kingdom of Judah. Well, when you've got a seven-year-old boy on the throne, think about your grandchildren, some of you have got them, think about it, being on the throne at seven years old. There was going to be a regent, wasn't there? There was going to be somebody who was going to do the ruling, if you like, on behalf of Joash. And it was obvious who this was going to be. It was Jehoiada, the priest. He was very much the power behind the throne. And as long as Jehoiada was there to advise him, Joash, quoting now from 2 Kings 12 verse 2, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He listened to Jehoiada and backed him. Looking at chapter 24, verses 1 to 14, Jehoiada undertook extensive repairs 
to the temple. And guess what? The people willingly paid their taxes. The people willingly paid their taxes. So this could happen. Fantastic. But of course, it couldn't go on forever. Jehoiada couldn't live forever. And when Jehoiada died, Joash had him buried. And it's interesting to see where Joash had Jehoiada buried. If you look at verse 16, he had him buried with the kings. This was unheard of. He had him buried with the kings in Jerusalem, quote, because of the good he had done for God and his temple. Because of the good he had done for God and his temple. So Joash is recognising him as he's grown up as a young man with Jehoiada as his advisor. He recognises and acknowledges the role that Jehoiada's played in restoring the land to worship of God and preserving the line of David and he has him buried with the kings. And now it gets a bit sad because with his trusty advisor gone, Joash was completely at a loss. He had been so used to relying on Jehoiada since boyhood. He found it extremely difficult to make his own decisions. And instead of taking the lead, as the king's supposed to do, what did he do? He turned to his officials for advice. And he listened to them. And he was swayed by their opinions. He even listened to them when their advice conflicted with what Jehoiada had said. Look at verses 17 to 22. And the sadness of it is, he never once, never once did Joash ask God for guidance. Presumably because he'd become king so young, he'd learnt to be dependent on people and he'd never matured. He'd never matured spiritually as a person into putting his trust in God. And, you know, when we take a hard look at ourselves, is that, is that true of us? You know, how much do we rely on other people for advice and guidance? And, or have we learnt to mature in our Christian walk and to trust in God for ourselves? Well, you don't need me to tell you that the result was disastrous. The transformation that Jehoiada's reforms had brought about, underlined and underpinned by Joash as king, the religious reforms that they brought about were completely undermined. They were completely sabotaged. Look at verses 18 to 19. I'm quoting. They abandoned the temple of the Lord the God of their fathers, and worshipped Asherah poles and idols. Because of their guilt, God's anger came upon Judah and Jerusalem. Although the Lord sent prophets to the people to bring them back to him, they would not listen. On one occasion even, God's spirit came upon Jehoiada's son, Zechariah. And his message to Joash was blunt and to the point. You see it in verse 20. And I'm quoting. Why do you disobey the Lord's commands? You will not prosper because you have forsaken the Lord, 
He has forsaken you. Once again, it seems that Joash didn't know what to do. And you can imagine the reaction of his officials and advisors to that, can't you? And they persuaded Joash to have Zechariah silenced, to have the prophet stoned to death for daring to say these things to the king. And Joash meekly signed the execution order for the death of the son of the man who had advised him for all those years. And in a call for justice rather than revenge, look at Zechariah's dying words to Joash. You can see them in verse 22. Quote, May the Lord see this and call you to account. May the Lord see this and call you to account. The following spring, a small Syrian force invaded Judah. And the much larger army of Judah was crushed and all the leaders killed. And Joash had to bribe Hazael, the king of Syria, or Aram, to stop him from attacking Jerusalem. So we have to pop back to 2 Kings 12, 18 to see what he did. And I'm quoting from that verse, 18, of 2 Kings 12, what Joash did was to send him all the sacred objects and the gifts he himself had dedicated and all the gold found in the treasuries of the temple of the Lord and of the royal palace. And that was to stop the king of Syria attacking Jerusalem. And if you go back to 2 Chronicles 24 and verse 24, you'll see that this was seen as judgment. Judgment on Joash and judgment on Judah for forsaking the Lord. And what was the result? What was the result of this humiliating defeat? It was simply this, that the officials that Joash had trusted and relied upon him, and, and I beg your pardon, and relied upon for advice, what did they do? They conspired against Joash and they assassinated him. What a tragic end, don't you think? A tragic end to the reign of a man whose early years had promised so much. Interestingly though, although Joash was buried in Jerusalem, it seems he was not placed in the tombs of the kings. Look at verse 25. He was not placed it seems, from that, in the tombs of the kings where he should be. Nor, perhaps even more interestingly, is he mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. Nor is he mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. Only one of three kings not to be included in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So let's turn to our third main character tonight, and that's Amaziah. 
And you'll find about him in 2 Chronicles and chapter 25. 2 Chronicles 25. I shall also be popping back to 2 Kings 14, where he is also mentioned. So, 2 Chronicles chapter 25. And we're going to pick up the story from the assassination of Joash, that tragic end to a life that began so promisingly. And he was succeeded by his son Amaziah, who was 25 years old at the time, when he became king. And from the start of his reign, we're told in 2 Chronicles 25 and verse 2, and I'm quoting, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And you think, good, good stuff, yeah. But there's a second part to the sentence. But not wholeheartedly. But not wholeheartedly. You see, Amaziah knew. He knew what God required of him, but he obeyed the Lord only grudgingly. And probably with a certain amount of resentment. We see that because he never, ever consulted God about anything. But in spite of this, God was gracious to Amaziah and sent prophets to warn him about his actions on two occasions, as we'll see. However, we have to say that Amaziah did actually obey the law of Moses when he avenged his father's assassination. Because we're looking at verses 3 and 4, we see that he only put the conspirators to death and not their sons as well. So he obeyed the laws of Moses in that regard. And he also obeyed God over the matter of the mercenaries. If we look down at verses 9 to 10, even though it cost him financially to do so. Now what's all this about then? Well, this situation arose when Amaziah decided to go to war against Edom. Remember that Edom were the descendants of Esau. Back to the book of Genesis there. And Amaziah thought that having 300,000 troops wasn't going to be enough to win against Edom. So he increased the size of his army to 400,000 by hiring 100,000 mercenaries. Guess where from? From Israel. Look at verse 6. So he hires 100,000 mercenaries from Israel. Now a prophet came and told Amaziah that this was a bad move. And he told him that this was a bad move because... God was not with Israel, God was with Judah, God was not with Israel. And if he went into battle with these mercenaries from Israel in his ranks, look at verse 8, and I'm quoting, God will overthrow you before the enemy. God will overthrow you before the enemy. To his credit, Amaziah listened. He listened. And what did he do? He sent the mercenaries home. The fact that Amaziah was obedient, although under protest, look at verses 11 to 12, resulted in Amaziah winning a great 
victory. He won a great victory because he was obedient to God. Look at verse 9 though. When he moaned about the financial loss he would incur, the prophet said, quote, the Lord can give you much more than that. That's a lovely thing, isn't it? The Lord can give you much more than that. Never mind about the finances, Amaziah. You did what was right. And the Lord will reward you and bless you for that. I wonder, you know, this is a challenge to us all. Do we ever allow financial considerations to influence our obedience to God? Do we ever allow financial considerations to influence our obedience to God? With Matthew 6 and verse 24 in mind, let me put it like this. When money talks and God talks, which talks the louder? When money talks and God talks, which talks the louder? Amaziah never seemed to make the connection. He never seemed in his life to make the connection between obeying God and being successful. His love for God was at best half-hearted. And he only followed God's ways because he felt he had to. Because he felt he had to. And what Amaziah did next clearly illustrates that half-heartedness is a slippery slope. Half-heartedness is a slippery slope that leads to us turning our backs on God and going our own way. Having conquered Edom, inexplicably, Amaziah decided to bring back their gods, the gods of Edom, and worship them instead of praising the God who had given him the victory. Now, I can't quite get my head around that, but that's what he did. And when God's prophet came and asked him, not unreasonably, you look at verse 15, why do you consult this people's gods, which could not save their own people from your hand? You know, why are you having time for them? Why are you worshipping them? They couldn't even save their own people. Amaziah told him to shut up or else. And the prophet's parting shot was ominous, I think you could say, if you look at verse 16, and I quote, I know that God has determined to destroy you because you have done this and have not listened to my counsel. So here we see that Amaziah's rejection of God had gone from half-heartedness to completeness, to complete rejection and ultimately led to his downfall. Well, the 100,000 mercenaries were not that happy. And while Amaziah had been fighting the Edomites, they had been getting their revenge on Amaziah. Amaziah's decision to dismiss them had made them angry. Well, why, you may be saying? Well, the reason's pretty simple. Because it cost them. It cost them the opportunity to benefit from all the plunder that was available after a victory. That's what you got when you're a mercenary. You got the opportunity to plunder and keep it for yourself as well as being paid for being part of that army. 
And verse 13, they raided several towns in Judah while Amaziah was away fighting the Edomites and they killed 3,000 people and made off with huge amounts of plunder from Judah. Well, Amaziah, having sent God's prophet packing, sought the advice of his officials. Look at verse 17. And they agreed. They agreed with his apparent determination to go to war with Israel to avenge what the mercenaries had done. And so Amaziah sends a challenge. He sends a challenge to Jehoash, the king of Israel. Now, Jehoash must have known that his army could defeat Judah. But rather than accept the challenge, he tried to avert a conflict, which is, you know, really one up to him, don't you think? I don't really want to, I know I can smash this lot, but I'd rather not have a war. Let's see if we can sort it out, was the attitude of Jehoash. And his reply to Amaziah must have come to something as a surprise to Amaziah, looking at verses 18 to 19. It was in the form, believe it or not, of a story. It was in the form of a story about a thistle and a cedar tree. The story of the thistle and the cedar tree. Now the thistle represented Judah and the cedar tree represented Israel. And in the story, the thistle was trampled underfoot by a wild beast. Just in case Amaziah hadn't got the message, which was, of course, like, if you make war with me, I am going to flatten you. Jehoash spelt it out. Look at verse 19, and I quote, You say to yourself that you have defeated Edom, and now you are arrogant and proud, but stay at home. Why ask for trouble and cause your own downfall and that of Judah also? But Amaziah was blinded, blinded by ambition. And not only was he blind, he was also deaf. He was deaf to any voice that contradicted him. And in verses 20 to 24, we see how Amaziah prepared for war. And the battle took place at Beth Shemesh in Judah. And there, Amaziah's army was routed. Amaziah was captured and he was taken back to Jerusalem in disgrace by Jehoash, who destroyed part of Jerusalem's defensive wall. He plundered the temple and the palace of their remaining treasures. And he returned home to Samaria, taking hostages with him. And the hand of God was seen to be behind all these events. They'd happened because Amaziah had abandoned God and worshipped the idols of Edom. Look at verse 20. And of course, looking back at verse 16, we can see that the words of the prophet there had been fulfilled. Surprisingly, perhaps, after such a debacle, Amaziah continued to reign for at least another 15 years before he was assassinated in Lachish, if you look at verses 25 to 28. 
verses 27 and 28 tell us that he was buried in Jerusalem and his son Uzziah became king. Let's just close with this thought. Applying Amaziah to ourselves. Like Amaziah, do, how do we obey God? You know, do we obey God grudgingly? And only because we think we've got to? Or we should do? Or do we serve him willingly? And wholeheartedly? Because we want to? And you might like to look at Psalm 119 verse 34 and Ephesians 6 and verse 7 when considering that. Let's pray together.